How bad would nuclear winter caused by a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange be? By Luisa underscore Rodriguez. Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and EA communities into audio. This is, How Bad Would Nuclear Winter Caused by a U.S.-Russia Nuclear Exchange Be? Published Luisa underscore Rodriguez on the Less Wrong. Summary. In this post, I quantify the severity of the nuclear winter we might expect to result from a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia, guesstimate model here. Researchers who have studied nuclear winter estimate that a nuclear war that produced between 50 and 150 teragrams of smoke would make agriculture nearly impossible, causing most people on Earth to starve to death and leaving humanity on the brink of extinction. But most of the research into nuclear winter was done at the height of the Cold War when the US and Russian nuclear arsenals and nuclear policies looked quite different. I previously argued that the US and Russia would be more likely to target each other's nuclear forces during a nuclear war, rather than target each other's cities as they would have done during the Cold War. This makes a big difference in whether a US-Russia nuclear exchange would lead to a severe nuclear winter. Nuclear attacks on cities would likely produce much more smoke than attacks on missile silos, military bases, and other nuclear arsenal targets. This is mainly because cities have much more flammable material to burn than the remote wildlands, mostly cropland and grasslands, that surround, for example, missile silos. This leads me to conclude that a nuclear war between the US and Russia would likely produce closer to 31 teragrams of smoke, 90% confidence interval, 14 TG to 68 TG of smoke, suggesting that nuclear winter is not as synonymous with US-Russia nuclear war as many effective altruists seem to assume. The 31 teragrams of smoke that would be vaulted into the atmosphere would undoubtedly produce severe climate effects, likely leading to food shortfalls and regional famines, and killing between 36% and 96% of the world population. I think the finding points us toward being a bit more skeptical of the idea that some effective altruists seem to hold, that a nuclear war between the US and Russia would necessarily lead to a nuclear winter that posed a large risk of extinction. There's about an 11% chance that 50 TG of smoke, the threshold at which the literature suggests the resulting nuclear winter would be catastrophic, are released into the atmosphere by a Russia-US nuclear war. To be clear, this 11% risk is non-trivial, and it's plausible that even a so-called nuclear autumn, the result of between 5 and 50 TG of smoke, would pose some sort of X risk. As a final point, I'd like to emphasize that the nuclear winter is quite controversial, for example, C. Singer, 1985, Zeitz, 2011, Robach, 2011, Coop et al., 2019, Reisner et al., 2019, Posita et al., 2016, Reisner et al., 2018. Also see the summary of the nuclear winter controversy in Wikipedia's article on nuclear winter. Critics argue that the parameters fed into the climate models, like, how much smoke would be generated by a given exchange, as well as the assumptions in the climate models themselves, for example, the way clouds would behave, are suspect, and may have been biased by the researchers' political motivations, for example, C. Singer, 1985, Zeitz, 2011, Reisner et al., 2019, Posita et al., 2016, Reisner et al., 2018. I take these criticisms very seriously and believe we should probably be skeptical of this body of research as a result. For the purposes of this estimation, I assume that the nuclear winter research comes to the right conclusion. However, if we discounted the expected harm caused by US-Russia nuclear war for the fact that the nuclear winter hypothesis is somewhat suspect, the expected harm could shrink substantially. December 19, 2019 Update In light of feedback from Carl Schulman, Kit Harris, Michaela, David Denkenberger, Topher Brennan, and others, 
I've made several revisions to this post that are now reflected in the text, figures, and estimates in the body of this post. The original post can still be found here. The changes that had the largest bearing on my results included. Correcting three typos in the formulas in my guesstimate model, details here. Changing the way I estimate the number of nuclear weapons that would be used in a countervalue nuclear exchange in expectation so that I don't accidentally truncate the tails of the distributions, details here. Accounting for the fact that the US and Russia would probably detonate multiple nuclear bombs on large cities in the event of countervalue targeting, details here. Accounting for the fact that counterforce targeting would likely involve nuclear detonations in and around some very large population centers, despite those cities not being the primary targets of the detonations, details here. After making these revisions and corrections, my estimate of the amount of smoke that would be lofted into the atmosphere went up from 20 TG of smoke, 90% C, 7.9 TG to 39 TG of smoke, to 30 TG of smoke, 90% C, 14 TG to 66 TG of smoke. Given this, the probability that a US-Russia nuclear exchange would cause a severe nuclear winter, assuming 50 TG of smoke is the threshold for severe nuclear winter, goes up from just under 1% to about 11%. The impacts that each individual change had on my results can be seen here. Thanks again to those who offered feedback, and also to Jamie Sevilla, Ozzy Guin, Max Daniel, and Marinella Capriati for feedback and support implementing the revisions. Project Overview This is the fourth post in Rethink Priorities series on nuclear risks. In the first post, I look into which plausible nuclear exchange scenarios should worry us most, ranking them based on their potential to cause harm. In the second post, I explore the makeup and survivability of the US and Russian nuclear arsenals. In the third post, I estimate the number of people that would die as a direct result of a nuclear exchange between NATO states and Russia. In this post, I estimate the severity of the nuclear famine we might expect to result from a NATO-Russia nuclear war. In the fifth post, I get a rough sense of the probability of nuclear war by looking at historical evidence, the views of experts, and predictions made by forecasters. Future work will explore scenarios for India and Pakistan, scenarios for China, the contradictory research around nuclear winter, the impact of several nuclear arms control treaties, and the case for and against funding particular organizations working on reducing nuclear risks. Modeling the impacts of a nuclear famine following a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange. In addition to the direct harm caused by a nuclear U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange, which I expect would kill between 30 million and 75 million people. Some experts believe that a large-scale nuclear war would have even more devastating effects than those caused by the initial explosion, see, for example, Robach, 2010. Following a nuclear detonation, all of the surrounding plant life and infrastructure within the radius of the resulting fireball would be burned up. In the event that many nuclear weapons were detonated, the resulting fires would be massive, producing huge amounts of smoke. And as the smoke rose into the sky, Upward-moving winds caused by the detonation would force the smoke high into the atmosphere, so high that the smoke might not be affected by the weather. Too high to be rained out of the atmosphere, the smoke could take 5 to 10 years to dissipate. In a large-scale nuclear exchange where several thousands of nuclear weapons are detonated, the smoke would spread enough to cover the entire Earth, eventually blocking out thermal radiation from the sun. Simultaneously, the smoke would disrupt the water cycle, causing annual rainfall to decrease globally. During the 5 to 10 years when the smoke is stuck up there, ice age-like temperatures would kill most crops, and a combination of the temperature and precipitation changes would make almost all agriculture impossible. If this phenomenon, known as nuclear winter, came to pass, it would likely to lead to unprecedented global famine, Robach, 2010. According to the work by Tuna Al 2007, on the climate effects of nuclear war, similar effects, 
though more limited in scale, would result from a smaller scale nuclear exchange. But it turns out that the amount of smoke that would be lofted into the atmosphere, the key mechanism in the nuclear winter hypothesis, depends a lot on whether the US and Russia would primarily target each other's nuclear forces during a first strike, counterforce targeting, or each other's cities and industry, countervalue targeting. For several reasons, nuclear attacks on cities would likely produce much more smoke than attacks on missile silos, military bases, and other targets associated with counterforce targeting. Most importantly, cities have much more flammable material to burn than the remote wildlands, mostly cropland and grasslands, that surround most counterforce targets. What is more, I'm told by experts that cities are more ignitable than the wild areas around a majority of counterforce targets. Even forests, the ecosystems that would produce the most smoke, aren't nearly as likely to catch fire as the non-organic material in cities. Moreover, the combustible material in forests would burn underscore cleaner underscore than that in cities, making the smoke less opaque, Crutzen, Galbally, and Brohl, 1984. Because the smoke generated by wildland fires would block less thermal radiation than the smoke produced in cities, the climate impacts of wildland fires would be much less severe relative to those caused by city fires. On the other hand, I've learned from experts that buildings that topple over would create rubble piles that would actually shield some flammable material from the fires, meaning that a smaller proportion of the flammable material in cities would actually burn relative to that in wild areas. But even taking this into account, my understanding is that the sheer volume of material would lead detonations in population centers to produce orders of magnitude more smoke. As I've argued previously, I expect that a first strike by either the US or Russia would focus on counterforce targeting, and that the exchange would be somewhat unlikely to escalate to the point of limited countervalue targeting, and even more unlikely to escalate to full-scale countervalue targeting. Consequently, this means that the amount of smoke generated by a US-Russia nuclear exchange may be less substantial in expectation than previously believed. To understand this more concretely, I crudely quantify the severity and impacts of the nuclear famine we might expect to result from a US-Russia nuclear exchange, see my guesstimate model. To do this, I look at each step in the causal chain in turn. First, I explore the specifics of the relationship between the number of civilian and military targets that might be attacked and the amount of smoke that's generated. I then look at the relationship between smoke in the atmosphere and the climate, for example, the effects on growing seasons and rainfall, to understand the impact of the resulting environmental effects on agriculture. Finally, I'll consider the number of people we might expect to starve to death as a result of those agricultural effects. Along the way, I'll note how uncertainty, and the simplifying assumptions I make to deal with that uncertainty, might bias my results. The scale of a US-Russia nuclear exchange. I expect that a US first strike against Russia would involve around 1,300 nuclear weapons used exclusively on counterforce targets, 90% confidence interval, 670 to 1,700, and that a Russian first strike against the US NATO would involve around 1,100 nuclear weapons, 90% confidence interval, 750 to 1,200, also exclusively used on counterforce targets. I expect that a counterforce second strike would look pretty similar to a first strike, though it's possible that a second strike by Russia would be somewhat smaller than its first strike one. As I discussed in my previous post, I also put underscore some underscore probability on the US or Russia electing to engage in countervalue targeting. I think the chances that Russia uses countervalue targeting against the US, conditional on Russia using a nuclear strike of any kind, are somewhere between 7% and 81%, and that the chances that the US uses countervalue targeting against Russia are about half that, somewhere between 5% and 59%.
assuming the US or Russia did decide to target the other cities, I expect it's most likely that their countervalue strikes would be limited to 1 to 20 nuclear detonations. See my previous post for details. That said, I also put some weight on the probability that countervalue targeting would escalate. If this did happen, I expect it would escalate to full-scale countervalue targeting, to the point of using hundreds of nuclear weapons to target US cities and industry, rather than stay moderate in scale. Below, I express my views on the probability of limited, moderate, and full-scale nuclear war quantitatively. I then aggregate these three scenarios into a single nuclear exchange scenario, which reflects the number of nuclear weapons I'd expect to be detonated in a countervalue attack against the US in expectation, so taking into account the probability that an exchange stays limited, escalates a moderate amount, or escalates to a full-scale nuclear war. See notes on the 95% C for number of weapons used by the US 2, and Russia 3. Also note that I do this aggregation by having guesstimate sample the number of nuclear weapons likely to be used from the three escalation scenarios, limited, moderate, and full-scale, in proportion to the range of probabilities of each scenario. There's a fair amount of academic literature on the relationship between the number and size of the bombs detonated in specific countries and the smoke generated by those detonations based on the amount of flammable material in key cities in those countries. I can use this literature to estimate the amount of smoke that is likely to be produced by the counterforce and countervalue targeting I expect to see during a US-Russia nuclear exchange. The amount of smoke generated by nuclear detonations. In the 80s and 90s, climate scientist Alan Robach, Brian Toon, Richard Turco, J.B. Pollock, and Carl Sagan modeled the amount of smoke and resulting climate effects that would be caused by the type of nuclear exchange that was feared during the Cold War a full-scale nuclear war with extensive countervalue targeting using the enormous, high-yield nuclear arsenals of the 80s, see for example Turco, 1983. They found that this type of full-scale nuclear exchange between the US and Russia would generate hundreds of megatons of smoke, enough to cause substantial worldwide climate effects. These nuclear war scenarios are no longer plausible, as the US and Russian nuclear arsenals are much smaller, lower yield, and more likely to be used for counterforce targeting rather than countervalue targeting. As a result, the early nuclear winter papers don't tell us much about how bad the nuclear famine that be if the US and Russia were to have a nuclear exchange today. More recently though, Toon et al. 2007, published an updated paper estimating the amount of smoke that would be produced by 50 low-yield bombs detonated in major cities in 13 key countries. Their research showed that, under certain assumptions, discussed in Appendix B, the amount of smoke generated by a nuclear exchange of a given size can be represented reasonably well by simple algebraic functions. Source, Figure 12 from Tunet al. 2007. While the authors didn't publish the data used to generate these functions, I was able to reconstruct the figure above, which allowed me to estimate the country-specific functions on my own, again, see Appendix B for details. After adapting the US and Russia specific functions to account for the fact that the bombs detonated during a US-Russia exchange wouldn't necessarily be as small as the ones modeled by Tune et al. 2007, I find that the amount of smoke expected to result from a countervalue attack using ex-nuclear weapons against the United States can be represented by the following function. Similarly, the amount of smoke expected to result from a countervalue attack of a given size in Russia can be represented by the following function. The amount of smoke generated by countervalue targeting. If I make two assumptions about US and Russian countervalue targeting, I can use these functions to estimate the amount of smoke that would be produced by the countervalue targeting scenarios discussed earlier. First, I have to be able to assume that targets would be prioritized on the basis of population size, as this was a key assumption in Tunet Al's, 2007, work. This assumption seems reasonable to me. 
If the US or Russia decided to target each other's population centers, I expect they would be trying to maximize fatalities by targeting the most densely populated cities. The exception to this would be if the US or Russia were selecting countervalue targets on the basis of causing economic harm. If this were the case, using the equations I derived from Tuna Al 2007, would overestimate the amount of smoke produced as industry cities aren't necessarily the most populated cities in either the US or Russia. I also have to be able to assume that only one nuclear bomb would be dropped on each city targeted. This would not necessarily be the case. But because the first nuclear detonation produces more smoke than subsequent nuclear detonations in the same city, I don't think the assumption is completely unreasonable. Nonetheless, the assumption will likely bias my estimate downward a moderate amount. Given that the assumptions are at least tolerable, I go ahead and plug in the probability distribution of the number of nuclear weapons I expect to be used in a countervalue exchange between the US and Russia. I find that about 30 TG of smoke would be generated by the expected countervalue attack against Russia in the event that the US pursued countervalue targeting, 90% confidence interval, 1.3 to 100 TG of smoke. I also find that about 15 TG of smoke would be produced by the expected countervalue attack against the US, assuming Russia decides to execute countervalue targeting against the US at all, 90% confidence interval, 1.4, 49 TG of smoke. However, as I've discussed previously, if the US and Russia did decide to target each other's cities, they would probably choose to drop more than one nuclear bomb on big cities and or economically important cities to maximize casualties and economic disruption. I roughly estimated the number of nuclear weapons that would be dropped on the four largest US cities and five largest Russian cities. Using the formulas above, I can then calculate the amount of additional smoke that would be caused by the detonation of multiple bombs on particularly big cities. When I did this, I found that multiple detonations on large cities in Russia would lead to an additional 20 TG of smoke, and detonations on large cities in the US would probably lead to an additional 5 TG of smoke. When I add this to the estimates above, I find that countervalue targeting in Russia would produce about 49 TG of smoke, 90% confidence interval, 21 TG, 120 TG of smoke. Similarly, I find that countervalue targeting against the US would generate about 20 TG of smoke, 90% confidence interval, 6.1 TG, 53 TG of smoke. I then multiply the amount of smoke generated by countervalue targeting against Russia by the probability that the US actually executes countervalue targeting against Russia. This tells me the amount of smoke that would be produced, an expectation. I find that between 0.98 TG and 20 TG of smoke would be generated as a result of US countervalue targeting against Russia, 6.8 TG in expectation. Similarly, when I account for the probability that Russia engages in countervalue targeting, I find that Russian countervalue targeting would produce between 0.83 TG and 32 TG of smoke, 8.2 additional TG in expectation. When I add together the smoke generated by US and Russian countervalue targeting, I find that between 5.1 and 58 TG of smoke would be generated by countervalue targeting by the US and Russia in expectation. The amount of smoke generated by counterforce targeting. Estimating the amount of smoke generated by counterforce targeting is more difficult. There's also been far less research on counterforce nuclear exchanges, there are only a few papers that speak directly to the amount of smoke that would be generated by counterforce targeting. And the research that has been done has modeled the impacts of counterforce strikes that would be implausible today, much larger than what the US and Russia would actually be able to execute. Turco, 1983, Krutzen and Burks, 1982, Krutzen et al., 1984, Small and Bush, 1985. Further, most estimates of the amount of smoke that would be produced by a counterforce exchange suffer from methodological problems that likely led to gross overestimates.
In particular, the models assume that the areas surrounding, most, counterforce targets would have much more fuel loading, the amount of flammable material, fuel, per unit area, than they actually do, Turco, 1983, Kritzen and Burks, 1982, Kritzen et al., 1984. Given this, I decided to manipulate the data functions I derived using Tunit Al's, 2007, work to estimate the smoke that would be generated by counterforce targeting while accounting for two factors. As I discussed above, the amount of smoke that would be produced by the burning of the wildlands that surround counterforce targets, like missile silos and military bases, would be just a fraction of the amount that would be produced by city fires. Assuming that countervalue targeting prioritizes cities in order of population density, the amount of smoke produced by countervalue targeting decreases sublinearly as the number of bombs detonated increases. In contrast, the smoke generated by counterforce targeting would increase linearly. Unlike in countervalue targeting, there's no reason that the 10th counterforce target would produce a different amount of smoke than the 100th counterforce target. To do this, I first estimate the total amount of smoke that would be generated by fires in the US and Russia assuming a linear relationship between the number of detonations and smoke produced. I then multiply those estimates by the factor by which the areas surrounding counterforce targets have smaller fuel loadings than cities do. I estimate that factor by dividing the fuel loading of the wildlands, 0.03 gram/cm2, 0.55 gram/cm2, around counterforce targets by the fuel loadings of cities in the US and Russia, 18 gram/cm2 and 12 gram/cm2, respectively. See appendix C for details. When I plug in the number of targets the US and Russia would each target during a counterforce first strike and then adjust for the factor by which wildland fires wouldn't produce as much smoke as city fires would, I find that a counterforce targeting by the US against Russia would produce between 0.11 TG and 2.5 TG of smoke and counterforce targeting by Russia against the US would produce between 0.31 TG and 6.1 TG of smoke. There is an important exception to the general rule that counterforce targets tend to be in more remote areas. It's fairly likely that a key component to a US or Russian counterforce strike would be to hinder the other's leadership command, control, and communication systems, LC3, in other words, the people and systems responsible for authorizing and carrying out nuclear attacks. To do this successfully, both countries would likely target each other's capitals. Because Moscow and Washington DC are relatively dense cities, the nuclear detonations would generate a fair amount of smoke, more than other counterforce targets and more than I'm accounting for in the smoke estimation above. To better account for this, I separately estimate the smoke generated by multiple nuclear detonations in both Washington DC and Moscow. I do this by using equations I derived from Tune et al. 2007, which can be used to estimate the amount of smoke generated by the NTH target hit in a nuclear attack on US and Russian cities, see Appendix C for details. Because I assume that cities will be targeted in order of population size, I can plug in the population size ranking for N to estimate the amount of smoke generated by a detonation on each city. I find that, if both the US and Russia both definitely targeted each other's capital cities, between 2.3 TG and 5.4 TG of smoke would be generated. I then multiply this by the probability that the US and Russia would target each other's capital cities, which gives me the expected amount of smoke generated by attacks on both Moscow and Washington DC. I put this probability somewhere between 50% and 100%, because I think they're more like to target each other's capitals than not, but have some uncertainty about exactly how likely it is that they do so. I find that a counterforce attack on Moscow and Washington DC would generate between 1.5 TG and 4 TG of smoke, 2.6 TG in expectation. Similarly, 
there are a number of military targets that are within or close enough to populated cities that detonations on those military targets would have substantial effects on surrounding urban areas. Fires in cities near military sites that were targeted during a counterforce strike would be smaller, and thereby produce somewhat less smoke, relative to a nuclear bombs detonated directly over cities. However, there would be enough additional smoke generated that it's important to account for it in the model. I accounted for this by looking into the nuclear weapons-related military sites that are in or near cities in the US and Russia with populations greater than 50,000, and then estimating the amount of smoke that would be generated as a result of detonations on those sites. To do this, I again use the equations derived from Tune et al. 2007, which estimate the amount of smoke generated by the NTH target, and because I assume cities are prioritized in order of population size, population size ranking can be plugged into the equation for N. When I do this for all of the cities near likely military targets, I estimate that counterforce targeting near cities would cause an additional 3 TG of smoke to be generated in Russia and an additional 2 TG of smoke to be generated in the US. Because it's unclear how much less smoke will be produced by nuclear detonations on military targets in or near cities, I make the simplifying assumption that the smoke would be the same as the generated by a nuclear detonation directly on that city. When I add up the smoke generated by counterforce targeting in remote areas plus the counterforce targeting on Washington DC and Moscow and cities near key military targets, I find that counterforce targeting by the US and Russia would generate between 7.1 TG and 12 TG of smoke, or 8.8 TG in expectation. The total amount of smoke generated by a US-Russia nuclear exchange. When I combine the smoke that would be generated by counterforce and countervalue targeting by both the US and Russia, I find that between 13 TG and 67 TG of smoke would be emitted into the atmosphere in expectation for. But this range is quite sensitive to conclusions I've drawn that well-informed experts seem to disagree on. In particular, whether the US and Russia would target each other's cities makes a big difference to the amount of smoke generated by a US-Russia nuclear exchange. The results are also sensitive to the probability that countervalue targeting would escalate, eventually reaching the point where hundreds of nuclear bombs were dropped on US and Russian cities and industry. To understand how my results change if you hold the view that countervalue targeting or countervalue escalation is inevitable, see Appendix D. The relationship between the smoke generated and the climate. From there, I can draw from climate simulations done by the same researchers to explore the climate effects of the smoke generated by the nuclear exchange. Importantly, this research is controversial. Critics argue that the parameters fed into the climate models, like, how much smoke would be generated by a given exchange, as well as the assumptions in the climate models themselves, for example, the way clouds would behave, are suspect, and may have been biased by the researchers' political motivations. I take these criticisms very seriously, and believe we should probably be skeptical of this body of research as a result, but for the purposes of this estimation, I assume that the nuclear winter research comes to the right conclusion. Toon, Robach, and Turco, 2014, estimated the climate effects of four nuclear war scenarios, one where 1 TG of smoke is generated, another where 5 TG is generated, a third with 50 TG and the final with 150 TG. For each of these scenarios, they plotted the effects of the smoke on precipitation, temperature, and the length of growing season in key regions in the United States and Eastern Europe. Note that the effects that Tuna Al 2014 report in this graph reflect the magnitude of the effects that we'd see in the years immediately after the nuclear exchange, the period during which the climate effects would be the worst. So, we should think of these effects as an upper bound on the severity of the climate effects, not the average effects across the 10 years over which the authors predict some level of climate disturbances will persist. Source, Figure 3a from Tuna Al 2014. I recreated the figures published in Tuna Al 2014 
see my work here, and estimated functions that roughly fit those curves. The effect of smoke on global precipitation can be approximated using the following equation. Similarly, the effect of smoke on global temperatures, in degrees Celsius, can be approximated by the equation. I can then plug in the probability distribution of the amount of smoke expected to be produced during a US-Russia nuclear exchange. This offers a glimpse at the worst climate effects we might expect to see. In effect, there's a 90% chance that the actual change in temperature caused by a nuclear exchange between the US and Russia will be between minus 1.6 degrees Celsius and minus 4.2 degrees Celsius at its most severe. Similarly, there's a 90% chance that the actual change in precipitation caused by a US-Russia nuclear exchange would be between minus 9.2% and minus 24% during the worst period of climate disturbances. The effects of the climate change on agriculture. Less work has been done to estimate the severity of the effects of nuclear smoke on food production. Harwell and Harwell, 1986, published a pretty extensive review of what we know about the variations in the climate that we expect to result from a nuclear exchange, and how these variations tend to affect different ecosystems, including agricultural systems. Because climate effects of the magnitude of those caused by large-scale nuclear war are unprecedented, at least in the context of modern society, it's difficult to create precise models to predict what would happen to modern-day agricultural systems when faced with huge drops in temperature and precipitation. In light of this, Harwell and Harwell, 1986, used a bunch of different methods to make broad generalizations about which ecosystems would be affected by various climate fluctuations, and by how much. Specifically, their analysis makes use of historical analogs, statistical analyses, laboratory physiological studies, simulation models, and expert judgment. Their analyses assumed that the nuclear exchange would cause a decline in temperature of a few degrees, Celsius, over the entire growing season, a decline in sunlight of about 5-20%, to 20%, and possible decreases in precipitation. When looking at the effects on agricultural systems specifically, they focused on grain crops, which make up a majority of the calories in the average diet, globally, and are the easiest crops to store. They found that most ecosystems would be moderately affected by the climate effects, and that agriculture would be substantially affected, though they only offer qualitative comments on how large those effects would be. A drop in temperature of a few degrees was reported to have extremely large effects on agricultural systems, and a drop in precipitation was expected to have large effects. Source, adapted from Table 3 in Harwell and Harwell, 1986. Analyses reported in Tunet L 2014, make it possible to roughly quantify some of these effects. The authors modeled the effects of temperature and precipitation on the duration of the average growing season in two key agricultural regions, Iowa and Ukraine, plotted here. Source, Figure 4 from Tuna Al 2014. Like above, I was able to extract the data from the figure, plot it, and estimate the functions that reflect the relationship between the amount of smoke produced by a nuclear exchange and the percent change in the growing seasons in both regions. See my work here. Note that the graph looks a bit different below because I chose not to present the horizontal axis using a logarithmic scale as the original figure does. The effect of smoke on the length of the growing season in Iowa can be estimated using the function. And the effect of smoke on the length of the growing season in Ukraine can be estimated using the function. Using these equations, I can estimate the probability distributions of the percent change in the duration of the growing season in Iowa and Ukraine. My modeling suggests that there's a 90% chance that the growing season in Iowa will fall by between 21% and 44%, and that the growing season in Ukraine will fall by between 14% and 48%. These estimates are only directly relevant to crop yields in the United States and Eastern Europe, but nonetheless, offer a glimpse of the types of effects we might expect to see. 
To help interpret these distributions, I estimated the percent change in the growing season that would prevent the maturation of, and therefore make it impossible to grow, several key crops, given the fact that both regions have average annual growing seasons lasting about 190 days on average, ranging from 160 to 210 days in Des Moines, Iowa, and from 170 to 210 days in Kiev, Ukraine. Given that it's likely that the growing season would shorten by 28% in Iowa and 25% in Ukraine in expectation, the annual supply of corn, soybeans, spring wheat, and rice will probably fall a fair amount. Additionally, it's plausible, though pretty low probability, 5%, that growing some of them would become impossible. Again, these effects are specific to particular regions in the United States and Eastern Europe. Regions closer to the poles would be more likely to lose the ability to cultivate certain crops, and regions closer to the equator would be less likely to be affected. For example, according to Harwell and Harwell, 1986, most agriculture would become impossible in Canada with temperature changes of between 2 and 3 degrees Celsius. Based on my estimation of the temperature effects we might see result from a nuclear exchange, it seems quite likely that Canada, and other countries with similar climates, would face crop failures immediately following a US-Russia exchange. On the other hand, the drop in temperature would have to be between 4 and 6 degrees Celsius to cause crop failures in southern US, and would have to be even larger to cause crop failures in the tropics, Harwell and Harwell, 1986. Importantly though, even if crops don't fail completely, fluctuations in temperature, precipitation and sunlight would cause reductions in crop yields. For example, analyses using the historical record and computer simulations revealed that 25% less precipitation was associated with a 25% reduction in Australian crop yields, Harwell and Harwell, 1986. The relationship between rainfall and crop yields likely varies enormously in different regions. In some areas, it might be sublinear, and in others, superlinear. But the Australian example is nevertheless instructive, offering a glimpse at the magnitude of the reductions in agricultural productivity we might see, even with moderate climate impacts. What is more, all of these effects would be exacerbated by the reduction or elimination of the availability of agricultural technologies like fertilizer and machinery caused by breakdowns in the transportation systems in the US and Russia. The same technologies would also be unavailable for any countries who import them from either the US or Russia. An elimination of technological inputs to agriculture, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, fuel for tilling and harvesting, machinery, may lead to a decrease in agricultural productivity of up to 50%, Harwell and Harwell, 1986. Unfortunately, while we can get a general sense of the types of food shortages we might see in the aftermath of a US-Russia nuclear exchange, the exact effects on the global food supply are almost impossible to know for several reasons. For one, the actual impacts of the climate effects on crop yields would vary a lot by region, which makes estimating those impacts really complicated. And even if we knew exactly how agricultural productivity would be affected, there are a number of things that could be done to mitigate those impacts, measures like shifting from meat-based diets to plant-based ones, and from high-maintenance crops to more robust ones, World Resources Institute, 2016. Those mitigation strategies would probably reduce food shortages to some extent, but it's really hard to know by how much. Given these complexities, I estimate the severity of the famine we might expect to see by looking at instances where experts have commented directly on the relationship between the smoke produced by nuclear war and the number of people expected to die during the resulting famine. The relationship between smoke and famine. To date, there have been only a few studies that have commented on the severity of a nuclear famine based on the amount of smoke generated by a nuclear exchange. Below, I summarize their results, focusing on the studies that use the most modern climate models. Sources for this table include Robach et al., 
2006, Robach et al., 2007, Robach, 2010, Robach, 2011, Xia and Robach, 2012, Health and 2013, Tune et al., 2014, and Baum, 2015. Some of the studies I'm relying on have serious limitations. In particular, the links that Health and, 2013, makes between agricultural shortfalls and famine is, understandably, unrigorous. To justify his claims that a limited nuclear exchange could lead to 873 million, 2 billion deaths, Health and, 2013, points out that 873 million people are already food insecure, and that another 1 billion plus people in China could become food insecure. He then notes that, historically, food shortages have caused sharp increases in food prices, suggesting that the world's food systems weren't able to compensate for those shortages. Further, he notes that this relationship is superlinear. The larger the shortage, the bigger the impact on the price of food. So it makes sense that food shortages would price out the world's most food insecure, people who are already unable to afford enough food, and who would become even more malnourished if food became more expensive. All that in mind, I think it's plausible that the 870 million, 2 billion people who are already vulnerable to food insecurity will starve to death, but the relationship between food shortfalls and famine is too complicated to know with any certainty. The world is just really complex. And, as I mentioned, there are a bunch of things we could do to adapt to the altered climate, switch from meat-based diets to plant-based ones and from crops that are more vulnerable to climate variation to crops that are more robust, World Resources Institute, 2016. Further, with just a couple of data points in that table, I can make educated guesses about the relationship between the amount of smoke generated by a nuclear exchange and the severity of the resulting famine, but those guesses come with a lot of uncertainty. As a result, all of my modeling from here on out should be taken as extremely speculative. I hypothesize that the relationship is best represented by a logistic function, S-curve. This is because, at very small amounts of smoke, our food system would likely be able to compensate for a slight cooling of the climate through the implementation of easy and cheap mitigation strategies. At somewhat higher amounts of smoke, beyond the level we could easily mitigate, I'd expect the number of people that would starve to death as a result of food shortages to increase rapidly, as the billion or so people that already face food insecurity would be extremely vulnerable to disturbances in the food supply. Food and Agriculture Organization, 2018. At even higher amounts of smoke, I expect the number of people that would starve to death to increase steadily as colder temperatures had proportionally large impacts on crop yields. At some point, the amount of smoke would lead to ice age-like conditions, at which point it seems like just about everyone in the world would die, Robach, 2010. Because the climate impacts would be somewhat less severe in the southern hemisphere, and because warm ocean winds would reduce the temperature effects on islands, it's possible that people living in New Zealand and Australia might survive, 80,000 hours podcast with Dave Denkenberger, 2018. Based on this reasoning, I generated optimistic, pessimistic, and best-guess logistic functions that roughly fit the available data points. Again, because there are so few academic papers that comment on this relationship, my estimation of these functions involved a lot of subjective judgment. The optimistic, pessimistic, and best-guess curves correspond to my personal interpretation of the information available on nuclear winter. For more details, see my work here. I can then plug in the probability distribution of the amount of smoke we might expect to be generated by a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange into each function to estimate an optimistic, pessimistic, and best-guess estimate of the number of deaths that might be caused by the resulting nuclear famine. I just report the best guess here, but you can see the optimistic and pessimistic estimates in my guesstimate model. Total deaths caused by the nuclear famine that would follow a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange. By my estimation, 
a nuclear exchange between the US and Russia would lead to a famine that would kill 5.5 billion people in expectation, 90% confidence interval, 2.7 billion to 7.5 billion people. A famine killing between 2.7 billion and 7.5 billion would be absolutely horrible. Between 36% and 96% of the world population would die in excruciating and prolonged death. I don't feel like I have a full grasp of the implications of this yet. On the one hand, I think the finding points us toward being a bit more skeptical of the idea that some effective altruists seem to hold, that a nuclear war between the US and Russia would necessarily lead to a nuclear winter that posed a large risk of extinction. There's about an 11% chance that 50 TG of smoke, the threshold at which the literature suggests the resulting nuclear winter would be catastrophic, are released into the atmosphere. On the other hand, 11% is non-trivial, and it's likely that even a moderate nuclear winter, the result of between 5 and 50 TG of smoke, would pose some sort of X-risk. Either way, the effects, some of which I don't yet completely understand, are potentially really, really terrible, possibly worth investing substantial resources to avert from an X-risk perspective, especially if there are particularly tractable ways to do so or if we expect geopolitical conditions around the likelihood of nuclear war and method of nuclear targeting to change over time. As a final note, I want to flag that a US-Russia nuclear exchange could have other X-risk-related implications not explored in this work. For example, I don't consider here the risk of famine resulting from nuclear fallout contaminating crops, or the threat posed by a high-altitude electromagnetic pulse, EMP, that could be generated by the detonation of a nuclear bomb at a high altitude, Foster et al., 2008. I hope to do so in future work. Appendix A, Simplifying Assumptions and How They Might Bias My Model. I want to be transparent about the fact that many aspects of my model, especially the probabilities of countervalue targeting and escalation, are very speculative and involved a lot of subjective judgment. Below, I summarize 1, all of the simplifying assumptions I made, 2, the ways they might bias my model, 3, how much those biases might affect my results, and 4, how hard it would have been to replace that assumption with actual data. End notes from the table, note on non-human animals 5, note on prior work 6, note on counterforce plus countervalue overlap 7. I aggregate these to try to get a crude sense of how my assumptions will bias my estimate on net. To do this I first assign a value of minus 1 to an assumption that would lead my model to produce underestimates, plus 1 to an assumption that would lead to an overestimate, 0 to an assumption with unknown implications. I then multiply each of those directional values by 1, 2, or 3 depending on the magnitude of the bias, i.e. a small bias would be multiplied by 1, a large bias by 3. I can then add the values up to see a rough indication of the direction and magnitude of the bias in my model. A score of 0 would indicate that there are no biases in my model, or equivalently, that all of the biases in my model likely cancel out. Because there are 34 assumptions in my table, a score, in this case, of 102 would indicate that my estimate is likely enormously inflated. In this case, I get a score of 12, which tells me that there's some risk that my estimate is an overestimate. It's worth noting that this aggregation scheme doesn't take into account the strength of each assumption. Theoretically, the scheme should weight the magnitude of the bias by how likely the assumption is to be wrong. Because I don't take this into account, I suspect that in this case the extent to which my model systematically overestimates the amount of smoke that would be generated by a US-Russia nuclear war is somewhat overstated. Appendix B, Estimating the Amount of Smoke Caused by Nuclear Detonations. Tuna al. 2007, estimated the amount of smoke that would be produced by 5015 kiloton, KT, bombs detonated in 13 key countries. The authors found that the amount of smoke generated by a nuclear exchange varies considerably depending on which country the bombs are detonated in, 
the result of the fact that cities in different countries differ substantially in the amount of flammable material they have, mostly a function of population density. Source, Figure 12 from Tuna Al 2007. Their research showed that the amount of smoke generated by a nuclear exchange of a given size can be represented reasonably well by simple algebraic functions. While the authors didn't publish the data used to generate these functions, I was able to reconstruct the figure above, which allowed me to estimate the country's specific functions independently, see my work here and here. But extrapolating from Tune Al 2007, relies on three assumptions. First, I have to be able to assume that targets would be prioritized on the basis of population size, as this was a key assumption in Tunet Al's, 2007, work. This assumption seems reasonable to me. If the US or Russia decided to target each other's population centers, I expect they would be trying to maximize fatalities by targeting the most densely populated cities. The exception to this would be if the US or Russia were selecting countervalue targets on the basis of causing economic harm. If this were the case, using the equations I derived from Tunet Al 2007, would overestimate the amount of smoke produced as industry cities aren't necessarily the most populated cities in either the US or Russia. I also have to be able to assume that only one nuclear bomb would be dropped on each city targeted. This would not necessarily be the case, and assuming so biases my estimate downward a moderate amount. Note, I'm currently in the process of revising my model to account for the fact that it is likely that more than one bomb would be detonated in many cities during a countervalue strike. Finally, I'd have to assume that the bombs detonated during US and Russian countervalue targeting would have an explosive yield of 15 kilotons. Rather, as discussed in my previous post, we should actually expect them to be a fair bit bigger. The median bomb in the nuclear arsenals of the United States and Russia are probably around 300 kilotons and 500 kilotons, respectively, Christensen and Norris, 2018, Christensen and Korda, 2019. To account for this, I adapted the functions to account for the fact that the bombs detonated during a US-Russia exchange wouldn't necessarily be 15 kilotons bombs. I did this by multiplying the estimates generated by the tune at AL 2007, functions by a factor that accounts for how a 300 kilotons or 500 kilotons bomb would generate more smoke than a 15 kilotons bomb. Because both the relationships between a bomb size and fatalities and the bomb size and smoke generated are both functions of population density, I can use the same scaling factor estimated in my previous post on the number of deaths we'd expect to be caused directly by nuclear detonations 8. According to that estimation, there would be 6.4 times as many US fatalities if Russia were to detonate a 500 kilotons bomb in a population center instead of a 15 kilotons bomb. Similarly, a 300 kilotons bomb would kill about 5.5x as many Russians as a 15 kilotons bomb. When I transform the functions, and then extrapolate to larger exchanges, I get the following functions. I transform the functions one more time so that I can estimate the total amount of smoke generated by end targets, i.e., cumulative smoke, rather than the amount of marginal smoke generated by just the NTH target. When I do this, I find that the amount of smoke expected to result from a nuclear attack of a given size in the United States can be represented by the following function. Similarly, the amount of smoke expected to result from a nuclear attack of a given size in Russia can be represented by the following function. Appendix C, estimating the amount of smoke caused by counterforce targeting. To estimate the smoke that would be generated by counterforce targeting, I manipulate the data functions I derived using TUNETAL's, 2007, work to accounting for two factors that make TUNETAL not directly applicable to counterforce targeting. As I discussed above, the amount of smoke that would be produced by the burning of the wildlands that surround counterforce targets, like missile silos and military bases, would be just a fraction of the amount that would be produced by city fires. 
Assuming that countervalue targeting prioritizes cities in order of population density, the amount of smoke produced by countervalue targeting decreases sublinearly as the number of bombs detonated increases. In contrast, the smoke generated by counterforce targeting would increase linearly. Unlike in countervalue targeting, there's no reason that the 10th counterforce target would produce a different amount of smoke than the 100th counterforce target. To do this, I first estimate the total amount of smoke that would be generated by fires in the US and Russia assuming a linear relationship between the number of detonations and smoke produced, see my work here. I find that the smoke generated by X nuclear detonations in US and Russian cities can be approximated by the linear functions. I then add a term to these equations to account for the factor by which the areas surrounding counterforce targets have smaller fuel loadings, again, this is the amount of flammable material, fuel, per unit area, than cities do. I estimate that factor by dividing the fuel loading of the wildlands around counterforce targets by the fuel loadings of cities in the US and Russia. To understand the fuel loadings of cities in the US and Russia, I draw from the work of Tun et al. 2007. Tun and his colleagues assume that, in cities, there is a direct relationship between the amount of fuel in a given city area and the city's population density 9. To understand that relationship, Tun et al. 2007, Review the literature on the known fuel loadings of other cities, including San Jose, Hamburg, and a few other cities in the U.S. Source, Figure 9 from Tuna al. 2007. Tuna al. 2007, found that population density did seem to predict the fuel loading found in past research reasonably well, albeit not perfectly. The authors then used this method to predict the fuel loadings in the 50 most densely populated cities in 13 key countries, including the U.S. and Russia, 10. Source, adapted from Table 13 from Tunet al. 2007. I then draw on the work of Small and Bush, 1985, who I believe have done the best work on the smoke generated by counterforce scenarios. Small and Bush report the fuel loadings of wildlands surrounding counterforce targets in both the US and Russia. They begin by identifying plausible counterforce targets in the US and Russia, and then categorize surrounding areas by ecosystem type. They then use data published by the U.S. Forest Service National Fire Danger Rating System, NFDRS, to understand the fuel loadings in each of the ecosystem types. Source, adapted from Table 1 from Small and Bush, 1985. I then take the average of these fuel loadings, which each fuel loading weighted BV the percentage of counterforce targets that are surrounded by a particular ecosystem, to get the range of possible fuel loadings for areas surrounding the counterforce targets overall. 0.03 to 0.17 gram slash CM2. Small and Bush, 1985, point out that previous estimates of the amount of smoke generated during counterforce targeting use much higher fuel loadings, erroneously, they argue. Citing models well-regarded models for predicting fire behavior in wildlands, Small and Bush, 1985, claim that the loading factors used by Critson and Burks and by Turco et al. are more appropriate for logged forests with extensive ground litter, slash, than for naturally occurring vegetation. Such values greatly overestimate the amount of fuel that can be burned in a nuclear exchange, p. 469. I'm inclined to agree with Small and Bush, 1985, but I'm pretty uncertain. I therefore use a range of possible fuel loadings in my model. The fifth percentile value comes from the lower bound on the weighted average I estimated using the data reported by Small and Bush, 0.03 grams slash CM3. The 95th percentile comes from the upper bound of the highest fuel loading value assumed by author researchers, 0.55 gram slash CM2, bolded in the table above. Because I put more weight on the fuel loadings reported by Small and Bush, 1985, I assume the distribution of fuel loadings is log normally distributed. The resulting probability distribution looks like this. 
Finally, I estimate that factor by which wild land around counterforce targets fuel loadings are smaller than fuel loadings in US and Russian cities by dividing the fuel loading of wildlands that surround counterforce targets, 0.03 gram/cm2 0.55 gram/cm2, by the fuel loadings of cities in the US and Russia, 18 gram/cm2 and 12 gram/cm2, respectively. I call this the counterforce fuel loading factor, CFL. I find that fires in wildlands around counterforce targets would only produce around 1.1% of the smoke that would be generated by fires in Russian cities, CFL of 0.011 on average. Similarly, I find that fires in wildlands would produce about 1.6% of the smoke that would be generated by fires in US cities, CFL of 0.016 on average. I can add these terms to my equations, which can then be used to estimate the amount of smoke produced by counterforce targeting against the US and Russia. When I plug in the number of targets the US and Russia would each target during a counterforce first strike, I find that counterforce targeting by the US against Russia would produce between 0.11 TG and 2.5 TG of smoke and counterforce targeting by Russia against the US would produce between 0.31 TG and 6.1 TG of smoke. In total, I expect counterforce targeting between the US and Russia would produce around 2.4 TG of smoke. But there is an important exception to the general rule that counterforce targets tend to be in more remote areas. It's fairly likely that a key component to a US or Russian counterforce strike would be to hinder the other's leadership command, control, and communication systems, LC3, in other words, the people and systems responsible for authorizing and carrying out nuclear attacks. To do this successfully, both countries would likely target each other's capitals. Because Moscow and Washington DC are relatively dense cities, the nuclear detonations would generate a fair amount of smoke, more than other counterforce targets and more than I'm accounting for in the smoke estimation above. To better account for this, I estimate the smoke generated by multiple nuclear detonations in both Washington DC and Moscow. I do this by again using the equations I derived from Tune et al. 2007, that I used to estimate the amount of smoke generated based on the scale of the attack on cities. Unlike above, where I used functions that reflect the relationship between the total number of nuclear detonations and smoke, the following transformations of those formulas represent the relationship between the target number, which is based on the assumption that cities would be prioritized on the basis of population density, and smoke. Because the target number is assumed to be based on population density, I can use demographic data about Russian and US cities to understand which target number Moscow and Washington DC would be. Washington DC is the US's 17th highest population density, and Moscow is the biggest city in Russia, and presumably the densest. I can therefore plug in 17 and 1 into the respective countries above to understand how much smoke would be generated by counterforce targeting against Russia. When I do this, I find that each 500 kilotons nuclear detonation on DC and each 300 kilotons nuclear detonation on Moscow generate about 0.11 TG and 0.455 TG of smoke, respectively. I expect that the US and Russia would both detonate multiple nuclear weapons on each other's capitals to increase the likelihood of decapitating the other's LC3. To account for this, I multiply the amount of smoke generated by one nuclear detonation in each city by total number of bombs I expect to be detonated, I would guess somewhere between 3 and 10 each 11, I find that, if both the US and Russia both targeted each other's capital cities, between 2.3 TG and 5.4 TG of smoke would be generated. I then multiply this by the probability that the US and Russia would target each other's capital cities, which gives me the expected amount of smoke generated by attacks on both Moscow and Washington DC. I put this probability somewhere between 50% and 100%, because I think they're more like to target each other's capitals than not, 
but have some uncertainty about exactly how likely it is then they do so. I find that a counterforce attack on Moscow and Washington DC would generate between 1.5 TG and 4 TG of smoke, 2.6 TG in expectation. When I add up the smoke generated by counterforce targeting in remote areas plus the counterforce targeting on Washington DC and Moscow, I find that counterforce targeting by the US and Russia would generate between 2.2 TG and 7.3 TG of smoke, or 3.9 TG in expectation. Appendix D, if you believe countervalue targeting is inevitable. As discussed above, the amount of smoke generated by a nuclear war between the US and Russia is quite sensitive to parameters that well-informed experts reasonably disagree on. In particular, whether the US and Russia would target each other's cities makes a big difference to the amount of smoke generated by a US-Russia nuclear exchange. The results are also sensitive to the probability that countervalue targeting would escalate, eventually reaching the point where hundreds of nuclear bombs were dropped on US and Russian cities and industry. Below, I explore two alternative scenarios that illustrate how my results would change if you held relatively extreme views about the likelihood of countervalue targeting and the likelihood that countervalue targeting would escalate. In scenario 1, I assume that neither the US or Russia would use any counterforce targeting, instead focusing exclusively on a countervalue targeting strategy. I assume that the probability of countervalue escalation is the same as in my base case model. This scenario would generate 79 TG of smoke in expectation, increasing the chances of a nuclear winter severe enough to likely cause human extinction to about 77%, conditional on there being a US-Russia nuclear war in the first place. In scenario 2, I assume that, in addition to exclusively relying on countervalue targeting, the countervalue nuclear exchange would be less likely to stay limited or escalate a moderate amount, and much more likely to instead escalate to a full-scale countervalue nuclear war. CN notes in Table on Distributions 12. I find that Scenario 2 would generate much more smoke than either Scenario 1 or the base case, about 94 TG in expectation. At that amount of smoke, Scenario 2 would be quite likely, 85%, to cause a nuclear winter severe enough as to pose an extinction threat. For those who hold the view that countervalue targeting is both inevitable and very likely to escalate, this finding supports the conclusion that a US-Russia nuclear war poses an extinction risk. Edits and corrections. December 19, 2019, I found a typo in a formula in my guesstimate model which caused the node calculating the amount of smoke that would be generated as a result of full-scale countervalue targeting against the US to refer to an incorrect node. Originally written 0.664 non to the power of 0.63, the formula referred to the number of nuclear weapons likely to be used in counterforce targeting against Russia, rather than the number of nuclear weapons likely to be used in a full-scale counterforce strike against the US, which would have read 0.664 non 7 to the power of 0.63. When I corrected this, the amount of smoke generated by a US-Russia nuclear exchange went down from 20 TG to 16 TG. December 19, 2019. I found typos in the formulas in my guesstimate models that I used to estimate the change in temperature and precipitation that would be caused by a given amount of smoke. Rather than enter the correct formulas, 0.276 TSG15.55 and 0.0485 TSG10.938, I entered 0.085 TSG10.938 and 0.276 TSG10.938. When I corrected this, the change in temperature went from down from minus 2.3 degrees Celsius to minus 1.7 degrees Celsius, and the percent change in precipitation went up from minus 5.4% to minus 10%. November 20, 2019, Kit pointed out that the way I originally accounted for the fact that a US-Russia nuclear exchange could stay limited, escalate a moderate amount, 
or escalate to a large-scale nuclear war causes my probability distributions representing the amount of smoke produced during each scenario to be artificially narrow. This happened because I estimated the expected number of nuclear warheads that would be used in the three nuclear exchange scenarios rather than sampling the number of warheads used in the various scenarios in proportion to the probability that a given escalation scenario would occur, see Kit's comment for more details. More concretely, I approximated the size of the nuclear exchange in expectation by taking the sum products of the number of warheads used in each scenario and probability that each scenario would occur. This approach was problematic in that the expected nuclear exchange scenario never took on the values at the upper extreme of the large-scale exchange scenario, i.e. cases in which many hundreds of nuclear warheads are used. And because the relationship between the number of warheads detonated and the amount of smoke ejected into the atmosphere is nonlinear, the truncation of the extreme values in the right tail gets further exacerbated when I estimate the amount of smoke generated by the expected nuclear exchange. Ozzy Guin helped me find a workaround for this in guesstimate. As a result of the change, my estimate of the amount of smoke we'd expect to be generated went up to 16 TG to 18 TG of smoke. Additionally, the upper and lower bounds on the confidence interval also got bigger, as well as slightly wider, indicating higher uncertainty than the original model did. December 19, 2019, my original model assumed that all cities targeted during countervalue targeted would be hit with a single nuclear bomb, of the median size in the US-Russian arsenal. This assumption led me to underestimate the amount of smoke that would be generated by a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange. I now assume that the U.S. and Russia would drop additional nuclear bombs on large cities, insofar as additional bombs would meaningfully increase the death toll. When I made this change, the amount of smoke expected to be generated by a U.S.-Russia nuclear exchange increased from 18 TG to 25 TG of smoke. December 19, 2019, my original model assumed that all counterforce targets, aside from leadership command, Control, and Communication Systems, LC3 in Washington DC and Moscow, would be in rural areas. In reality, some counterforce targets, like air and naval bases, would be in or near populated cities, where the amount of smoke generated by nuclear detonations would be orders of magnitude greater than that generated by detonations in rural areas. Failing to account for this caused me to underestimate the amount of smoke that would be lofted into the atmosphere in a counterforce targeting scenario. When I revised my model to account for the fact that a number of large cities would likely be affected by nuclear detonations in urban counterforce targets, the amount of smoke I expect would be generated by a US-Russia nuclear war in expectation went up from 25 TG of smoke to 30 TG of smoke. Credits. This essay is a project of Rethink Priorities. It was written by Luisa Rodriguez. Thanks to Peter Herford, Marinella Capriati, Ida Springers, Marcus A. Davis, and Neil Dullahan for their valuable comments. Thanks also to Matt Jensel, Carl Schulman, and Seth Baum for providing guidance and feedback on the larger project. If you like our work, please consider subscribing to our newsletter. You can see all our work to date here. Bibliography. Appendix B, Text Exemplars and Sample Performance Tasks, ND. Common Core State Standards for English Language Arts and Literacy and History Social Studies, Science, and Technical Subjects. Retrieved from http colon slash slash www.corestandards.org asset slash appendix underscore b.pdf. Baum, SD 2015. Winter Safe Deterrence, The Risk of Nuclear Winter and Its Challenge to Deterrence. Contemporary Security Policy. Bonser, KND. How Wildfires Work. How Stuff Works Retrieved from. Crutzen, PJ, and Burks, JW 1982. The Atmosphere After a Nuclear War, Twilight at Noon. In Nuclear War, The Aftermath. Ambio. 11, 2 thirds, 114 to 125.
Retrieved from www.jsterorg stable slash 4312777. Crutzen, P.J., Galbally, I.E. and Brull, C. 1984. Atmospheric effects from post-nuclear fires. Underscore climatic change underscore, 64, 323 to 364. 80,000 hours. 2018, December 27th. We could feed all 8 billion people through a nuclear winter. Dr. David Denkenberger is working to make it practical. Audio blog interview. Retrieved from Slash. Food and Agriculture Organization. 2018. Sophie 2018, The State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World. Retrieved from http colon slash slash www.fow.org state of food security nutrition and slash. Foster, J.S., Gilda, E., Graham, W.R., Herman, R.J., Klupfel, H.M., Lawson, R.L. Woodard, J.B. 2008. Report of the Commission to Assess the Threat to the United States from Electromagnetic Pulse, EMP, Attack. Retrieved from http colon slash slash www.incommissionorg docs slash a2473 emp underscore commission 7 megabytes dot pdf. Harwell, M. and Harwell, C. 1986. Nuclear Famine, The Indirect Effects of Nuclear War. In the Medical Implications of Nuclear War. Washington, D.C., underscore National Academies Press underscore USDOI, 10.17226940. Hellfand, A2013. Nuclear Famine, 2 Billion People at Risk? 2nd ed., Rep. International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Retrieved from. Christensen, H.M., and Korda in 2019. Russian Nuclear Forces, 2019. Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Christensen, H.M., and Norris, R.S. 2018. United States Nuclear Forces, 2018. Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Luger, R.G. 2005. The Luger Survey on Proliferation Threats and Responses underscore United States Senator for Indiana Chairman, Senate Foreign Relations Committee underscore retrieved from http colon slash slash mx1.nuclearfiles.com menu slash key issues nuclear dash weapons issues slash proliferation fuel dash cycle senate.gov underscore npsurvey.pdf. NTI Glossary. Nuclear Threat Initiative. Retrieved on 2019, May 24th from. Pittock, a B1989. Environmental Consequences of Nuclear War. EOS, Transactions American Geophysical Union. Robach, a 2010. Nuclear Winter. Wiley Interdisciplinary Reviews, Climate Change. Robach, a 2011. Climatic Consequences of Nuclear Conflict. Agu Fall Meeting 2011. Retrieved from http colon slash slash climate.inshu.rutgers.edualanagufellowslecture.mp4. Robach, A., Oman, L., and Stenchikov, GL 2007. Nuclear Winter Revisited with a Modern Climate Model and Current Nuclear Arsenals, Still Catastrophic Consequences. Journal of Geophysical Research Atmospheres. Robach, A., Oman, L., Stenchikov, GL, Toon, O.B., Vardin, C. et al. 2006. Climatic Consequences of Regional Nuclear Conflicts. Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics Discussions. European Geosciences Union, 6, 6, 11817-11843. Retrieved from. Robach, A., Oman, L., Stenchikov, G.L., Toon, O.B., Vardin, C., and Turco, R.P. 2007. Climatic Consequences of Regional Nuclear Conflicts. Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics. Toon, A., Robach, 
A.N. Turco, R.P. 2014. Environmental Consequences of Nuclear War. Ape Conference Proceedings. 1596, 65. Tune, O.B., Turco, R.P., Robach, A., Bardeen, C., Oman, L., and Stenchikov, GL 2007. Atmospheric Effects and Societal Consequences of Regional-Scale Nuclear Conflicts and Acts of Individual Nuclear Terrorism. Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics. Turco, R.P., Tune, B., Ackerman, T.P., Pollock, J.B., and Sagan, C. 1983. Nuclear Winter, Global Consequences of Multiple Nuclear Explosions. Science, 222,630,1283-1292.Retrieved-from-http-science.science-mag-org-content-slash-2-22-4630-1283.short. Small, R.D. and Bush, B.W. 1985.Smoke Production from Multiple Nuclear Explosions in Nonurban Areas. Science, 229,412, 465-469. Weatherspark, A.N.D. Average Weather in Des Moines. Retrieved from. Weatherspark, B.N.D. Average Weather in Kiev. Retrieved from. World Resources Institute. 2016. Animal-based foods are more resource-intensive than plant-based foods, web log post. Retrieved from. Xia, L., and Robach, a 2012. Impacts of a nuclear war in South Asia on rice production in mainland China. Climatic change. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.